Hey church, my name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. Let's open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 3, verse 28. Romans chapter 3, verse 28. Either type in uh, that address or go to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you can go past Acts, and then you get to Romans. If you get to First and Second Corinthians, go back to the left. Romans chapter 3 verse 28. Today we're going to look at a verse that really summarizes one of the most central ideas in all of Pauline literature and all of the works that the Apostle Paul has written, this idea of justification by faith alone. If you remember, when we looked at verses 21 through 26 over the past number of weeks, Paul has been focusing on the righteousness of God. And what we've learned is that righteousness is not an idea Righteousness is a person. Jesus Christ, is what we have learned, is our righteousness. And, and in being so, because Jesus is our righteousness, then Paul could say that in him we have a righteousness which is apart from the law. It, it, it's by grace. It's, it's through this person and work that Jesus Christ has done, not by our own works. In, in other words, that we are saved not by our obedience, but by the obedience of of Jesus. And that's this idea that we're going to look at today of uh, righteousness apart from the law, particularly through faith. Because if you remember, we've shifted from that particular passage, 21 through 26, and in 27 and on, Paul focuses on faith and he explores more about faith. That faith is the instrument, if you will, or the pathway in which righteousness has been extended to us. Righteousness is given to us not by our works. Righteousness is given to us through the work of Christ by faith. And so let's look at our passage, Romans 3, verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So what I, what I like to do today is first consider what does this verse mean? What is justification by faith apart from works? of the law. But then I, I want to spend most of our time today consider, considering why he even needs to write this statement, what, why this is so crucial for our understanding, and why he understood that though it was a core doctrine for him in all of his writings, why he continually repeated it, and he continually repeated this particular idea. Why did it need to be said? So first we'll look at what it is, justification by faith and why it is that Paul needed to play it on repeat, not only for his first readers, but by God's grace through his providence for our ears as well. So let's ask for God's help and we will get to work. So Heavenly Father, help us. Help us as we come to your word uh, to hear, to listen to you. We're so hurried even in this season. So much hustle, so much noise, so many things going on around us, so many things happening outside of us and inside of our hearts and minds. So we need your help. Speak to us. What a gift that you speak to us. May we submit ourselves to you. Hear your voice and obey what you tell us. For your glory, our good, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So what does justification apart from works, particularly works of the law, mean? Well, first let's notice the communal language that Paul uses. Notice in verse 28, the, the first thing that he says is that for we hold, 
Now, in some of Paul's writings, he sort of speaks out of his own authority. He says, this is what I teach you, or this is what I think. I, I'm offering this to you. But here, Paul is speaking in harmony with a concert of Christian believers. He's speaking about something which can best be described as church doctrine, which is good for us to consider. We live in a time when doctrine and theology are pejoratives. They're viewed as negative ideas. In our day, we see things like universal consensus and truth to be suspicious. And, and we even uh, have animosity towards these sorts of things as just sort of a general rule. But not only, notice, does the Apostle Paul write the doctrine of the early church through his collection of letters and epistles to followers of Jesus, but here we see that he even submits to them. He's not just writing them, he's submitting to them. And so as such, it's, it's good for us to understand that Paul does not see himself, then therefore we should not see him as the originator of this doctrine of salvation by faith apart from works. He, he doesn't even see himself as such. He sees himself as a member of a community, as, as one who believes this universal truth to which God has revealed to him and to, to him as Paul and, and to his community. So Christian doctrine that is good for us to understand is as old as Christianity and justification by faith alone is part of our ancient heritage, is part of our spiritual heritage. So with that in mind, we need to remember not only is it communal, this, this uh, idea of justification uh, by faith alone. But it's a pronouncement. Justification is a pronouncement or an announcement of righteousness. In the Greek language, which most of the New Testament was written in, righteousness and justification share the same root word, dikaiu. So Paul is literally saying one is righteousified by faith made righteous or proclaimed righteous. So justification is one thing then, but it's also many things because of that particular word that Paul uses that, that is also used elsewhere in the New Testament. So a few things that we, we need to think about, a few aspects that we need to think about when we think about justification, and we've reviewed some of these over the past many weeks. There, there's a covenantal quality to justification. We are no longer under the law or shame, but under grace as a gift of God through faith. And so we might just simply say that Jesus washes us clean. This is part of justification. Not only so, but there's a forensic quality to justification. We're, we're proclaimed not guilty in Christ and released from eternal consequences of sin. So we could, we could say that Jesus takes our punishment or Jesus takes our consequence. So he washes us clean. He takes our consequence. Both are justification. Thirdly, there, there's a relational quality to justification. We are made right in Christ. So we are welcomed into fellowship with God, into his presence. We have peace with God. Jesus makes things right. So Jesus washes us clean. Jesus takes our consequence. Jesus makes things right. So in, in all of that, then, we see justification by faith. We see justification by faith. It means all of that. And all of this is extended to us in that regard, by faith. So it's, it's not done through what we have done or what we haven't done, so, so the, the good we've done or, or the evil we have refrained from doing, but, but all of this is extended to us, Paul says, by believing and trusting in Christ, the one who washes us, the one who has forgiven us, the one who makes us right. 
See, Jesus saves us and we receive this salvation through the tool or the pathway of faith. See, faith does not save us. Jesus does. Faith is merely the pathway or the tool in which, the way in which we receive the saving work of Christ. So in Romans 10, Paul's going to say to us, and we're going to look at this in a couple of months, because if, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Salvation, that's being justified then, being proclaimed and made righteous, is bestowed upon us through faith, by grace, as a gift. It is faith alone. Martin Luther, the German reformer, who took up the mantle, really, of this modern-day Christian doctrine of justification by faith, wrote this in his book, Faith Alone. He says, it is faith without good works and prior good works that takes us to heaven. We come to God through faith. See, there's this persistent misnomer, even within the church, that it's sin that sends you to hell, and I guess the lack thereof that sends you to heaven. But what the Bible teaches and what Luther affirms here is that sin is not the determining factor about your eternal destination. Rather, it's faith. Faith welcomes you into eternal life with or without God. See, faith in yourself saves you, or rather separates you from God. And faith in God binds you with him forever. And that's not just for justification or salvation. Faith is not just the pathway in which we are saved, but it's also the goal of our justification. See, God matures us the same way, the exact same way that he saves us. Have you ever noticed that day by day, what it is to be a believer in Christ is to learn to trust him more? I mean, there, there is never anything that God does in your life that, that he is, is not at the very same time growing trust in your heart for him, growing faith in your life toward him. He is always growing our faith. So we don't just believe at the bedside of conversion. That's not just the moment of faith. Every single day, the life of, believer, of a believer is all about faith. Author uh, Marva Dawn has lived by faith her entire life. And she's learned to do this in some pretty trying situations, not only with chronic illness and lifelong singleness, but the daily struggles of life that any of us face. And she's lived it all by faith. And she writes about this in her book, In the Beginning, God. And I think she puts it in such a helpful way. She says, the goal of the Christian life is that for more and more seconds of each day, what we think and do and say is to God's glory that every moment is worship of the true God instead of various idolatries of our making and of our cultures. See, isn't it true that physical comfort is a huge idol of our day? That marriage is an idol of our day, especially within the evangelical church. Idols, Don says, that she faces every single day. And she explains that in each case, each idol invites us to trust them or to really have faith in them or in ourselves. But as a Christian, in each of those moments, we are being invited by God to trust him and not our idols, to have faith in him and not in ourselves. See, as Christians, we are called more and more to be one who has faith in God, not in our idols, not 
in me, not in you, not in ourselves. That's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 3, verse 28. That's the teaching of justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law. But I think at first blush, that seems simple and clear enough. So why is it then that Paul has to continue to teach this? And why is it such a central and core idea for him and his teaching? not only here in Romans, but in all of his correspondence. And I think in a word, the reason why he has to continually repeat it and why he is teaching it with such clarity here, in a word, it's fear. See, we daily struggle to live by faith, don't we? It's hard. Faith in God is risky. It's vulnerable. It's costly. It's way more costly in the short term to trust God and not ourselves and not our idols. See, God is not about instant gratification. He is about eternal joy and fulfillment. And so what I'd like to explore today is that why we fail to live by faith in God and why we trust our idols, why we trust ourselves, I want to, by God's grace, uh, through his word, get under that a little bit. Now, contrary to popular presumption, doubt is not faith's main issue. I think doubt is actually a friend, not a foe to faith. It's fear that's our issue. See, fear leads us ultimately to have faith in ourselves. I had a seminary professor once to share with the class that faith is a vision of the future where God is present and victorious. Conversely, he said, fear is a vision of the future where God is absent and defeated. I wonder today, if you just think about what do you think about the future? Many of us have had wars going on in our, in our minds and in our hearts and, and really all around us in our social media feeds and in the news that we watch and that we take in. There is a vision of the future where God seems absent and defeated, isn't there? It's one that we're told about every single day. And so for the believer in Jesus, what we are daily learning to do is to lay down that vision of tomorrow and to pick up the truth, a vision of the future where God is present and God is victorious. And I've always found this helpful. You see, unbiblical fear tells us that God is not enough. And our situation is too bad. It's too bleak. It's too much. Therefore, faith in him, faith in God, could not possibly be enough and is certainly not alone. We, we need our works is what a fearful vision of the future tells us. And so we begin to believe that we need to do something to secure our own future, to secure and make our own tomorrows. We believe we need works to save us and sustain us when we have a vision of the future that is riddled with unbiblical fear. See, why do we believe that works will save us? <clears throat> because we're afraid that God can't, or at least he won't. Why do we believe that works will mature us? Because we're afraid that God won't or can't give us what truly will bring us joy, what we truly want and desire and need. So underneath all of this is unbiblical fear. That's why Paul has to continue to write and instruct us on justification by faith and faith alone. And so I want to talk about fear. We have to talk about fear if we want to understand faith particularly justification by faith alone, and, and to learn to live by this faith every single day. You see, we're driven, I think, by unbiblical fear, and it, and it drives us away from faith in God. So, so today, let's consider three things. We'll kind of shape the rest of our time in God's word. The, the nature of fear, the cause of fear, and the remedy of fear. The nature, the cause, and the remedy. So let's begin with the nature. See, probably the best place to begin 
if we want to understand unbiblical fear, is a wonderful passage in Luke chapter 12, the very words of Jesus. So meet me there. If you're still in Romans 3, turn back to the left, just a few books of the Bible. You go through Acts, then uh, John, and then into Luke. So Luke chapter 12, verse 4. Luke chapter 12, verse 4 through 7. Here's what Jesus says. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten. Oh, excuse me, are not, verse 6 says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten by God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. In short, what Jesus does in this very short moment is that he uses the word fear five times, and he uses it in three different ways. First, Jesus says, do not fear those who can kill the body. That's, that's fear of man. Second, Jesus says, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who has authority to cast into hell. Fear him, he says. That's fear of God. Third, Jesus says, fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. This is, this is a fear connected to self-worth. See, instead of fearing God, what do we do? We fear the things and the people of this world. And that's the first way that Jesus uses fear in Luke chapter 12. See, in doing so, we give others more thought than we give God. We are more overcome by the power and importance and prestige of people than we are of God. We are more impressed with people and things than we are of God. See, Jesus draws out this logic, revealing its folly. Jesus says, don't fear those who can only take your life physically. Fear God, the one who is sovereign, not only over your physical life, but your spiritual and eternal well-being as well. See, what Jesus exposes, and hear this, church, this is so important for us. We often, in fear, have more faith in people, more faith in the physical realm, more faith in what we can taste and touch and see, more faith in ourselves than we have faith in God. But Jesus says we must fear God and no one else. See, throughout the Bible, the fear of the Lord is actually equated with faith. That's the second way that Jesus uses this language of fear. See, Paul, in fact, has already criticized his readers in Romans for not appropriately fearing the Lord. And he borrows, Paul does, this idea from a host of Old Testament scripture writers and particularly psalmists. In Psalm 112, verse 1, The psalmist says, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Notice that fear of the Lord actually leads to obedience. King David said in Psalm 34, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. See, fearing God actually leads to being able to see and enjoy the fullness of life that he offers And then in Proverbs, Proverbs 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom 
and instruction. So fearing the Lord, it not only leads to obedience and understanding the fullness that God of life that God has to offer, but fear is also the birthplace. Fearing God is the birthplace of wisdom and of knowledge. So biblically, fearing God is actually the exact same thing as having faith in God. See, because of this fear in God, because of an appropriate, holy, and biblical fear of God, we are not only protected from external fears, but also internal ones. That's the third kind of fear that Jesus speaks about. See, isn't it true? We're not only tempted to be afraid and controlled by the world around and outside of us, but also by the worlds within us. See, our visions of the future are not just plagued with thoughts of others and how they may harm us, but also thoughts of ourselves and who we may or may not be. See, Jesus understood this better than anyone. In particular, the fear within his listeners that day that Jesus identified was about their self-worth. They feared that they were not worthy of love. They feared that they were not worthy of God's sovereign protection. They feared that they were not worthy of his attention and care and intimacy and faithfulness. And what Jesus teaches us and what Jesus taught them is that we don't need to fear what even those those voices that plague our internal well-being because the creator of all things says that you and I, his, his image bearers are the most valuable in all of his creation. So the nature of fear of God is complex. But I think when we juxtapose fear and faith, things become a lot clearer. See, biblically, faith and fear are like two sides of the same coin. Whatever we fear most, paradoxically, is actually the object of our greatest faith and trust. Conversely, whatever the object of our faith may be, Fear is at the center, the heart of that relationship as well. So here's what this means, that whenever we are fearful of the world around us, it's as if we trust and believe in the power of this world more than God. When we are fearful of the worlds within us, it's as if we trust and believe in ourselves more than the love of God. So in the Christian life, Faith and fear cannot be pulled apart. What Jesus was teaching us in Luke chapter 12 was that when we have faith in God, we fear him more than anything around us, anything outside of us, and anything within us, even ourselves. That's the nature of fear. And so to be justified by faith apart from works of the law is to give ourselves over fully to fear God and to have complete faith in him, which is simultaneously an act of no longer fearing the worlds within me, the worlds around me, and the worlds outside of me, no longer placing my faith in others and giving my will completely over to him. See, fearing God is faith in God, and faith in God is fear of God. When we fear God rightly, we will not fear the world. When I have faith in in him, I don't trust my works to save and sustain me. I only trust that he can do that. That's what Paul is teaching in Romans 3, verse 28. For we hold that one is justified apart from works, by faith, apart from works of the law. We have been justified by God. We've been justified through the works 
of God. We've been justified through the love of God. We've been justified by the mercy, grace, forbearance, generosity, power, glory, might, and majesty and favor of God. So fear him. Have faith in him. Not your works. Not your worlds. Fear and have faith in God. But this is still a daily struggle. It's easy to say that. It is certainly harder to live that out. Because we battle unbiblical fear all the time, don't we? Uh, Why? Well, in a word, sin. Sin is the reason that we battle unbiblical fear all the time. Do you know what Adam and Eve, their first words were after they sinned? I'll tell you. Genesis 3, verse 10. And he said, this is, this is Adam sort of defending himself to God about why they, why they hid when God says, where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Can I submit to you something? The thing that Jesus identified in Luke chapter 12 about, about the fear of self-worth that he identified in his audience that day, the first time that God identified that was in Adam and Eve in the garden when they hid from God when he came walking in the cool of the day. This has always been our issue. This is our issue today. As much today, church in the square in the city of Chicago in 2021, as it was in the first century with Jesus listeners, as it was in the beginning of time with Adam, he was afraid because of the worlds within him and around him and outside of him caused by sin. See, they were afraid. They were fearful. Now, this was not the first time that they'd experienced fear. The first couple experienced fear when the serpent painted a picture of the future for them, a picture where they were not divine, a picture that when they uh, did not have a knowledge of good and evil, they feared lack. So two people then who never knew suffering or pain or sin or separation from God and his good, good pleasure had more faith in the, in the words of Satan, in his words of scarcity, than they had in God's word. Do you see Sin produces fear. They begin to look within themselves. They begin to look outside of themselves and around themselves, considering the brokenness. As a result, they feared Satan and had more faith in his word than they did in God and his word. What results from sin? Worlds of fear. Within us, outside of us, around us. And I think it's persistent. It's this persistent cause, why this continues to happen is really threefold. Three causes of fear for, for Adam and Eve, for Jesus' first listeners, and now also for us. Trauma, consequence, and brokenness. Trauma, consequence, and brokenness. In, in other words, they were sinned against by the devil. It's a kind of trauma. They sinned themselves and faced the consequence of death and and were kicked out of the garden and separated from God. But there was also brokenness. Brokenness entered the human story that day in countless ways, but namely, specifically, death. Death is our primary brokenness as a human race now. And so on that day, as God promised, they died. They lived, therefore, under this cloud of unbiblical fear that is still hovering over our heads because of misplaced trust. It wasn't because they had too little or too much faith. It's that their faith and their fear had the wrong object, themselves and Satan. 
Let's consider these. Consider these three things, places, causes of fear that, that God, we, we just ask for your help. Help us to see what you're showing us. Help us, Father, to hear your voice in this moment. So we'd be a people that wouldn't live in fear, but live uh, fear of you, rather. Not fear of man, not fear of this world, not fear of the evil, but fear of you. Give us that, that kind of faith. The first we need to look at is trauma. Trauma is an experience of when someone has sinned against us and, and it causes shame and shame causes fear. See, see, trauma causes all of these worlds of fear within us as a result, perhaps of everyday injustices like a condescending or manipulative boss or spouse, or it can take place because of a life altering violation of our bodies and our will. That means it is much more common and much more severe than many of us may presume. I know this is true for me, that I presume that there was a very specific and acute way that these sorts of experiences happen. But as psycho psychologist Diane Langenberg explains in her book, Suffering in the Heart of God, which has been immensely helpful for my wife specifically, but for Laura and I as we have discussed her time in reading this book, uh, Langenberg writes this, a look at suffering humanity would lead to the realization that trauma is perhaps the greatest mission field of the 21st century. See, trauma has a hold on us individually and communally. We've been sinned against. It's by no guilt of our own. We've been sinned against. You've been sinned against. And a fear then persists within us, perhaps within you, a fear that, that tells us that the sin of another is stronger than the power of God. This fear manifests in hesitancy to speak or to live with vulnerability and humility, perhaps, of living in such a way that, that there is this constant feeling and drain of hopelessness over us. Lang Langberg continues and explains that living with this fear replaces faith in God. She says, after trauma, rather than faith being foundational, the tra traumatic experience becomes foundational. The trauma will serve, she says, as a framework. Trauma causes fear within us, disabling us from rightly fearing God and placing our faith and trust in him. See, in trauma, we believe the lie that what has happened to us is greater than God and what he is able to do on our behalf. And so shame and trauma persist and continue to cause fear and cause us to live in fear. Secondly, consequence. This is very different than the experience of trauma and shame because this is a result of our own sin and guilt then causes fear. Guilt and consequence are sort of wrapped up within one another. That consequence causes fear outside of us, namely God. Now, this can be either redemptive or destructive. Consequence Consequences are actually meant to teach us something. It reveals God's heart, that, that he is a, a good father who disciplines his children. However, there is a difference between being shaped by loving discipline and obeying to avoid consequence. That's self-righteousness. In fact, that's the situation that Jesus told about in the, the parable of the prodigal son. But it wasn't about the son who came home. It's about the son who never left. The older brother. See, upon the arrival of the sinful and wayward younger brother, the older brother is angry. Why? This is how Jesus tells the story. This is what the older brother said to his dad in Luke chapter 15. Look, 
These many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, not his brother, but son of yours, and when this son of yours came, who has de devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. What's revealed in the son's heart is that in staying home and doing everything that his father asked is that he was not obeying out of love and gratitude, but he was obeying to avoid consequence. In other words, he's not acting like a son. He's acting like a hired hand. That's misplacing faith and fear. That's believing that material blessing and painful consequences are more powerful and more real than God. So in consequence, what happens is that we believe the lie that we've done or can do something that is greater than God, that our sin is too great or that our works of righteousness are even too great, that God can't help us, so we must help ourselves with our own righteousness. It, it makes us think and believe and live out of this idea that our works are more powerful than God's works. That's why consequence and guilt continually cause fear. We have to always stay on our guard. We have to always do what is right. We have to be perfect. That's what self-righteousness teaches us. Thirdly, not only the world's within us and the world uh, outside of us, but also the world all around us. See, brokenness because of sin has marred our whole world. Death produces fear. Brokenness is all around us. You see, the thing about death is that it doesn't wait for you to die, does it? Before it gets its effect on you. It has its effect on you. See, even though Adam and Eve did not physically die the moment that they sinned, death instantly invaded their lives. And it's been around ever since. See, they were separated from God, Genesis chapter 3. They, they felt animosity in their marriage and in their family, not only in Genesis 3, but on into chapter 4. And one of their sons ends up murdering the other. See, to this day, everywhere we look is death. And this is certainly true in a global pandemic. People are not only dying, but we are afraid of dying. We're sick and afraid of getting sick. We're hungry and afraid of getting hungry. We're out of work and we're afraid of losing our work. We're gripped by fear. Why? Because death doesn't wait for you to die. Death causes us to believe in a future when and where God will be absent and he is defeated. That's the power of death. It produces fear all around us that tells us that what is happening in our world is more powerful than God himself. It's a belief that death is greater than God and what he is able to do. See, Paul tells us that we've been justified by faith. But because we are gripped with this unbiblical fear, we don't always believe it. So he has to put it on repeat. He has to say it over and over and over again. See, the nature of our fear is ultimately a misplaced faith. The cause of this fear is trauma, consequence, brokenness, and it begs the question, what's the remedy? If that's the nature of faith, if that is ultimately what's underneath that, what's causing fear, if that's right, then what, what really is the remedy? What's the remedy underneath all of this? Well, in a word, it's Jesus. Jesus is the remedy. See, see, he, he 
is the remedy of all of your fears. And the question, of course, is never, have you heard that before? But the question is, do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus can calm the fear of your trauma? Do you believe that Jesus can calm the fear of consequence and guilt? Do you believe that Jesus can calm your fears of brokenness and death? Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. See, in the world you will have tribulation, he said, but take heart, I have overcome the world. See, Jesus acknowledges his listeners' incredible cause and the incredible cause for fear and misplaced faith in this life. Jesus doesn't just say, there's nothing to be afraid of. Don't worry about it. He doesn't say that your trauma and your consequence and the brokenness is a figment of your imagination. Just get over it. He says, I've overcome those things. He says, I've overcome the world. And, and he says, take heart. Why? Because I've overcome the world. I'm greater, he says. I'm more powerful. I'm better. I've done something about the objects of your fear. That why, that's why that, that phrase, take heart, is so incredibly important. What Jesus is saying is that because he has been victorious, we can actually share in his victory. And his overcoming work sets the course and vision of a new future where God is not only present, but he is completely victorious. See, your fears within you and outside of you and all around you do not own you, my sisters and my brothers. They do not control your future. Jesus does. Jesus owns you. Jesus is sovereign over everything. Not only your past, not only your present, but also our future. How could Jesus make such a claim? What exactly has Jesus done to overcome the world? How does all of this contribute to this concept that we dare not let go of? Justification by faith apart from works. Faith alone. Well, first we must understand that Jesus on the cross endured trauma and despised shame. See, the writer of Hebrews sets our vision on the cross when he writes, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, on the cross, Jesus despises shame. Therefore, he is able, hear this, to meet us in our shame, to wash us of our shame, even from the most severe of violations. Again, Diane Langberg helps us in this. She says the crucified is the one who was most traumatized. He has been in the darkness. He has known the loss of all things. He has abandoned. He was abandoned by his father. He has been to hell. There is no part of any tragedy that he has not known or carried. He has done this, she writes, so that none of us need face tragedy alone because he has been there before us and he will go with us. And what he has done for us in Gethsemane and at Calvary, he asks us to do as well. We are called to enter into relationships centered on suffering so that we might reveal in flesh and blood the nature of the crucified one. That's this covenantal quality of justification. We are no longer under the law. We are no longer under shame, but under grace through the gift of faith. See, Jesus endured the trauma of the cross so that he might meet us and wash us clean, to set us free of a guilty conscience, to set us free from fears and misplaced faith, so that we'd look to him. 
so that he would set our course, so that he would be the one that we see, so that he would be the one who we trust, so he would be the one with, in whom we would have faith. Of course, this takes time. It takes care and vulnerability. It takes love. It takes a work of his powerful resurrection. But Jesus does overcome our shame by enduring trauma for us and with us. Jesus also took our consequence on the cross and dismantled our guilty sentence. The apostle Peter explains it this way. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, he says, you have been healed. This is justification by faith alone. See, through the cross, Jesus overcame our consequence and our guilt by bearing our sins on the cross. Jesus takes our punishment and our consequence was severe as Fleming Rutledge wrote in her book, The Crucifixion. From beginning to end, the Holy Scriptures testify that the predicament of fallen humanity is so serious, so grave, so irremittable that from within, that nothing short of divine intervention can rectify it. We could not overcome our guilt and consequences of our sin, certainly not by just doing better and doing works of the law and righteousness. So thanks be to God, what our works could not afford, Jesus purchased for us. Thanks be to God that what we could not, would not, and were absolutely unable to do, God in Christ has done on our behalf. That's the forensic quality of justification. We are proclaimed not guilty in Christ and released from the eternal consequences of sin. Why? Because Jesus overcame our guilt by taking away our consequence and taking our punishment on himself. And Jesus also weathered the brokenness of this world on the cross and brought holistic healing through his death. See, John has a vision and records it in Revelation. He sees the resurrected Lord coming down from heaven to make all things new. That's the relational quality of justification. We are made right in Christ. All things are made right in Jesus. So we are welcomed in his presence. We have eternal peace with God. In other words, Jesus overcomes the brokenness of this world by dying for this world. And so John could put it this way. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. Jesus brings a healing that lasts forever. He conquers all of our fears. So do you see? Do, do you hear? Are you picking it up on it? Are you understanding? Are you comprehending? Oh God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Your fears and mine have been scared to death by God in Christ on the cross of Jesus. He overcomes shame and trauma. Jesus is our victor. He overcomes guilt and consequence. Jesus is our savior. He overcomes death and brokenness. Jesus is our healer. So my sister, what do you fear? My brother, what do you fear? Church, what do you have to fear but God? The cross says no one. The cross says nothing. The cross says ever. The cross says again. The cross says forever. Yes. It may take time. 
Yes, it will take community. Yes, it takes an increasing daily, more and more reliance upon his word, his love, and his power. But we have been justified by faith apart from works. We have been freed, therefore, from the fears of this life which have owned us in our sin, which have owned us by the works of others, which have owned us in our own works in the worlds around us and over us and outside of us and within us. See, a life of fear believes a lie and trusts a lie and has faith in a lie that anything ever could be better, greater, more powerful than God. And what Jesus tells us and proves on the cross is there is nothing impossible for him. And so we are freed to fear God alone and to have faith in God alone because of Jesus. So God, help us to be a people who fear you alone and to have faith in you alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.